one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is episode 505 for the week of Monday, February 4th, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Hey, Sawyer. We're about ready to dive into another episode of the Twilight Zone here for Judgment by the Stories we're going to talk about, so I'm itching to get started. Oh yes, things are about to get interesting. And welcome as well, Mark Ratterman. Yeah, this is Mark Ratterman with his own version of a warp mine because I couldn't help but think that if you write down the number backwards for this episode, it still comes out correct. It's a palindrome, everyone's favorite. All right, so let's get into things with a favorite story from the last week. And the developments from this have been going crazy, which is why we are feeling that we are falling into the Twilight Zone. And this goes to the story with the launch from Iran last week. If you recall, last week Iran reported that they had launched a monkey into space, and that was last Monday, supposedly, when they made the announcement. If you remember from last episode, we weren't quite sure about whether it actually happened or not, but there was no official word confirming or denying it from anybody here in the West. Well, a statement has now been released... One of the State Department's spokespeople said that a lot of questions remained about whether the monkey that they reportedly sent up into space and reportedly came down was actually the same monkey, whether he survived, quote-unquote. Yes, you heard me right. They're not sure if it is the same monkey. What we mean by that is there was a picture released of that monkey that supposedly went into space. However, the monkey shown later seemed to have different facial features. It was missing a wart. So, is this a photo mix-up, or is this just a major error that they completely missed when trying to fool everyone? I Well, yeah, who knows? Um, I, I was following the story over the weekend, and I saw, you know, I was sort of scratching my head a little bit, you know, as we all were after, uh, after last week. And I looked at a copy of the, uh, of, of the Jerusalem Post, and they had both photographs sort of side by side, and I'm like, "Huh, that's interesting." Because neither the the, the two animals, it wasn't just a little wart. If you notice, too, the facial structure of one an, one animal is a little different from the other. So I'm like, "Okay, uh, what's going on here?" And and you know, the, the article was saying, "You know, the, there's there's some monkey business going on with the photographs." No pun intended. So I'm looking at this, I'm like, yeah, they're right. And not only that, but a couple other news outlets also kind of put the same photographs side by side and said, yeah, this is a little weird. 
Well, Sawyer, as you mentioned, the Iranians came back and said, well, we, were, we accidentally showed the backup monkey or whatever it was. Uh, but, you know, we're still sticking to our guns. The, the monkey still flew and, and that's that. So um, am I buying this? Uh, the answer is probably not. But Sawyer, again, the story's been been going from curious to bizarre to just downright almost Twilight Zone-ish. So uh, I'm going to throw it back to you, and you can add that little missing piece of the puzzle to this whole thing because it. I, I sat there when I first saw this story, and I, I, I looked at the source, and it was Space.com, and I could have sworn I was reading an article from The Onion. You got it. So as the questions continue to arise about whether the monkey went into space was real or not, or if it was, was a picture mix-up or one that possibly died in 2011, there is some new news that came out today about Iran's space program, and that was Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who came out saying, and again, I also thought this might have been from The Onion, a farce news site, that he says he will be the first Iranian astronaut to launch aboard their own rockets. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this article, and this is from, again, this is Space.com, and it's written by a, a good friend of the show, uh, Clara Moskowitz. And she quotes uh, Ahmadinejad saying, quote, I am ready to be the first human to be sent into space by Iranian scientist, closed quote. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, what? Yeah, <laughs> I it, it, if it wasn't so incredulous, it'd be laughable. I'm I'm beginning to think that you know, if if you recall, uh, under uh, under North Korea, uh, Kim uh, Kim Jong Il, there was a lot of stories about him, about him having these superhuman elements and all of this and. Um, certain traits that he had and so on that made him, you know, superior to everybody. And I'm beginning to think that we're, we're kind of seeing the same type of internal propaganda for Iran sort of shape up with this, uh, with this kind of story. Um, I know Iran said that they were working on a, on a working spacesuit. They said they had one, um, you know, now Akbandimajad's coming forward. I'm going to be the first, you know, Iranian, you know, sent into space. And I guess he's just he's just trying to to just sort of appeal to, you know, the internal things and so on to make himself look bigger than life. I don't think I think we're looking we're, we're not looking at, at somebody boasting something here. I think what we're looking at here is, is a cry for help. Um, I think we're looking at, at sort of the, the baby crying until he gets the rattle. And I'm I'm still kind of kind of scratching my head as to what the heck to make make of this, other than the fact that he wants us talking about it, which is unfortunately we are. And just to put my two cents in, I'll just say this short and simple: do it again. And then, of course, I'll ex expound on that a little bit. By do it again, let's think about land speed records. The uh, highest land speed record by a wheeled vehicle on land. From what I read in Wikipedia, there's no single body for validation, but the common practice is a flying start. It's officially recognized by national organizations. It's a course of a fixed length, an average of two runs. The two runs are in opposite directions within one hour, 
and a new record mark must exceed the previous one by 1% to be validated. So, if they sent a monkey to space, do it again. You brought up a good point, Mark. The other thing, too, is how come there's no film of or no you know, evidence of the monkey inside the spacecraft during the flight? That's another thing that kind of crossed my mind a little bit. And I mean, we've, I mean, shoot, don't we have film of, of ham for crying out loud from back then? I think, don't we? I've seen video. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. So, you know, how come this hasn't been materialized or, you know, or are they saying, well, we, we never really thought of that? Uh, so again, I'm, Mark, I'm with you. You know, prove it. Show me, do it again. <laughs> I'm so with you. Uh, as far as the Iranian president, I mean, I mean, I'm all politics aside. Some people already think he's already in space, but it, it's just again, I think think we're we're dealing with a with a cry for help. I, I I honestly mean that. Just to link the two stories together between Ahmadinejad and the monkey, uh, Senator John McCain sent out a tweet earlier about his decision to become the first astronaut himself. And his quote was, wasn't he just there last week in reference to the monkey? Yeah, he got hammered by that, too. Uh, a couple of people saying that the comments were, you know, were, were in bad taste and all this. And I believe McCain retorted back. It was a joke. Come on. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people really, really took that the wrong way. Um, I mean, I, again, you know, as Mark Mark alluded to i think extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and uh so far iran hasn't produced any um so uh, I, again i'm not buying it yet and and nobody in the west could, could corroborate really what happened uh last week so again i'm i'm saying you know until you guys can prove it i'm not gonna buy it yeah, this is really just an interesting case because, I, I mean, like I was saying last week, this could be good and this could be bad. Yeah, obviously, there's the threats of war and the possible connotations of nuclear attacks. But at the same time, if they launched a monkey into space, I think that's a huge accomplishment for them. And I think they should be, you know, shouting it from the rooftops, which in my opinion, says that, okay, we've got a major problem here, and I have a feeling that this isn't true. This is just a scare tactic. Yeah, so you're right. And, and again, I, I said this last week. If, if it is correct, and they really did do this, I think the, the world is a, is a less safer place right now. I mean, this is a nation that is striving to get a nuclear weapon, and it's kind of run by somebody who I don't think is, is really, really... You know, it, it would not be afraid to use them. So, you know, we've got a. I, I think it's a very, very scary situation. It really is, and there's so many factors coming in here that it's just a whole bunch of information with no facts. Yep, agreed. So we're all gonna have to keep a close eye on what's going on out of Iran, and we'll see what happens, and if anything else comes out of clarifications. Yeah. Call Joe Friday. Just the facts, ma'am. And we will keep you up to date on just those facts. And the rumors, of course, because that's the fun part. Alrighty then. So as bizarre as this seems, we have come to the end of round one. We figured that this story was important enough that we needed to devote an entire round just to it. 
So we are now going to move on to our second trip around the table. And to begin the second round of stories, it will come to me. And this is going to be a medley mashup of stories, all somehow related. So let's start with part one, and that is about Felix Baumgartner. If you may remember, he performed the Red Bull Stratus Jump, which was a world record breaker. It was a skydive from, as they called it, the edge of outer space, and the official numbers are in. It took them this long, but the leap was officially at 127,852 feet up, which is about 250 feet lower than the original guess, but still stratospheric, as it's called. And these numbers, I should add, are coming from the Associated Press. And when it came to his speed, he reached 843.6 miles per hour, which is Mach 1.25, and is 10 miles an hour faster than originally estimated. Regardless, that still gives him the records for the fastest free fall. And the highest as well. Good for him, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, know, sorry, was that still within, in target of what they were thinking the data was going to look like? Or how far off really was it? Well, the original leap altitude, that was off by 248 feet, and the actual speed was off by just under 10 miles an hour. They thought Mach 1.24, it was 1.25. Wow. Still. I mean, okay, fine. Yeah, I mean, still, it, 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 it's an achievement and a half, and he did set out to do what he, what he set out to do. Uh, it was still an extraordinary achievement. Hats off to him, and, and hopefully we've learned something, too, about uh, suit design and possibly even uh, escape modes uh, for future commercial uh, spacecraft. So, fingers crossed that this really wasn't, uh, you know, just some, you know, daredevil stunt. It, we actually, you know, learned something from it. Yeah, and just so you know, the peak speed was reached at an altitude of 91,350 feet, which was 50 seconds in, and he was back to subsonic speeds by 75,000 feet, which was 64 seconds in. So that was the Red Bull Stratus Jump, and there has been a lot of, I guess we could say commercialization of space, but not in the way that we normally talk about, like SpaceX and those kind, but... The actual commercialization, such as companies, such as some commercials that aired during the Super Bowl in the United States this past weekend. And uh, there was, once again, as we talked about last week, the Axe competition, or links, depending on where you are, about sending people into space, right? Yeah, uh, there were a couple of cool commercials in in there and and so on as far as the, uh, the Super Bowl is concerned. Super Bowl for for folks that don't live here uh, in in the U.S. is not only you know a great game for American rules football. Uh, the the believe it or not, the television commercials are also kind of sort of part of the part of the event and to see how how creative companies can get. And there were some very very creative uh, commercials, but there was one in particular that uh, the company, I guess you know the company that does Axe, uh, which is essentially a, a men's uh, you know, grooming. Uh, company uh, had a very interesting commercial over there for uh, um, for their you know get into space contest and and all I'm going to say is this it just seems like uh, 
Uh, when you stack everything up, the astronaut always gets the girl, it seems. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> and that, I think, is an interesting transition into my third story that I, I had to mention. It's so silly <laughs> and so pathetic and so random that I just had to mention it. And we will do our best to keep our clean rating on iTunes while mentioning this story. <laughs> because Coco Brown, who apparently her stage name is Honey Love. I'm not even going to go into the list of films that she has starred in. All I will say is that she is an adult film star who is now planning to be the first adult film star to go into space. She is planning to go up by a company called SpaceXC, which is a private company in the Netherlands. And reports are that she will most likely fly on a Lynx spacecraft, but none of that has been confirmed. And once again, it says that she will be trying to go in March of 2014, although that date will most likely be pushed back. But... I just had to mention this, and I'm not even going to go into what this Huffington Post article also speculates about. Yeah, I, I saw that on on Facebook before we went on Sawyer. I guess uh, you know, I I, I I she is flying a Lynx, huh? Uh, that's the report. That that's an, a report from somebody that has some information, but I, it's not confirmed or anything. All that is confirmed is that it will be through the company SpaceXC, which is based out of the Netherlands. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess Virgin Galactic's out of the question. Actually, <laughs> I'll be here all week. Oh, God, that's terrible. Normally I come up with the bad jokes, so. But yes, if you want to uh, read more about that or do some research on her, you can do that in your spare time through the article in the Huffington Post. And I will go no further than that, and I am biting my tongue as is. Smart move, so am I. <laughs> Alrighty then, so with that, I'm going to chase any dreams or any thoughts out of my head, and instead we will flop that around, and we will go to the Dream Chaser. Gene? Yeah, Sierra Nevada uh, last week uh, said it's getting ready to, to head out to uh, California to go ahead and test the Dream Chaser mini shuttle. Uh, for those of you who do not know what that is, uh, the Dream Chaser is essentially a seven-person a uh, small version of what the space shuttle kind of sort of looked like. It began its life as the as a NASA project called the HL-20 uh, back in the early 90s. And unfortunately, NASA had to give up on it due to budget cuts. Uh, what it was designed to do was take seven individuals up into space and just act as a mini space taxi. And it was going to essentially be docked at the ISS uh, for you know emergency uh, purposes only. And if you had to go ahead and uh, beat a hasty retreat off of the uh, the ISS for any reason that would be sitting there, essentially equivalent to what the Soyuz would be. So in this way, you know, you you don't have the shuttle permanently docked there, and you can't do that. So this thing would be designed to sit there for about 210 days and and be fresh to get you out of there and get you back home. Back home. Uh, um, well, Sierra Nevada uh, Corporation, based out in Colorado. Uh, picked up the idea and is now running with it uh, as part of the uh, the commercial crew uh, initiative uh, that uh, NASA is doing. And uh, last Wednesday, they announced that Lockheed Martin is going to be assisting them 
in the uh, in the drop tests that they're going to be doing out at Edwards Air Force Base. This is to go ahead and, and certify the vehicle for flight and to make sure that it's safe for crew. Now, this is also the part that is going to be kind of reminiscent. If you recall, and Sawyer, so this will probably be near and dear to your heart since uh, the vehicle that I'm about ready to talk about, talk about is part of uh, is part of the collection over at the Intrepid. Um, the Enterprise did some similar tests. Uh, the, the essentially uh, drop test landings out at Edwards Air Force Base back in 1977, where it was dropped from the uh, top of a uh, from a 747. Um, these tests are essentially going to be the same thing, where Dream Chaser is probably going to be dropped anywhere between two to five times, and telemetry data is going to be taken to uh, make sure that it can come in through the at- you know through uh, uh, the atmosphere and fly correctly to a to a uh, a uh, regular landing the same way that you know we've seen for the past 30 years with shuttle uh lockheed martin is investing some of its own treasure into this i believe the price according to this article here that i'm looking at from florida today uh, i think they had mentioned that um human rating work that's going to be uh performed is going to cost uh under the you know it's going to be cost about 10 million dollars and i believe uh if i'm reading this correctly uh, NASA recently awarded um, Sierra Nevada that $10 million for that test phase. Uh, but Lockheed Martin is also going to be going ahead and doing some manufacturing work on, uh, a, on, on a future Dream Chaser vehicle um, out at, uh, at Michoud in New Orleans. Uh, so Lockheed Martin getting involved in this project, which, by the way, and, and for the record, Lockheed is also building the Orion multi-purpose crew vehicle or the capsule at least and uh so so they're you know they're they're not exactly slouches uh with Lockheed Martin's involvement in in this project I think it really really seals the deal I think dream chaser is going to happen um with because of this partnership and it, it's looking really really good and I'm I'm kind of excited for it because again this is I'll be I'll be blunt. I really want all of these these the CCI cap guys to succeed. I want to see I want to see Dragon succeed and carry crew. I want to see um, the CST one hundred fly and 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 do its job. And I want to see see the Dream Chaser do its job too. Because I think think this one though is, is kind of a little bit has I have I have a little bit of a soft spot for Dream Chaser because it it calls back back the shuttle. If you look at it, it kind of looks like if, if you've ever seen photographs of, of it or, um, you know, the artist renditions of it, it kind of looks like a, a baby version of the orbiter. And um, it, it's something really, really to get excited about. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, how well the drop tests go. And I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing what, what Sierra Nevada can do going forward with this. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of excited about it. I mean, I, I think this is going to be interesting, and I have to agree with you that the Dream Chaser is, is one of my more favorite of the vehicles, uh, if I had to say one. And, you know, obviously Lockheed Martin is a big player, so you got two big players, you know, teaming up together. I have a feeling something, dare I say it, big may come out of this. Yeah, I mean, one of the comments, too, that Mark Serangelo, who is the uh, the uh, president of uh, Sierra Nevada Corporation, basically said, quote, and I'm going to quote him directly from the article, we should go back to do whatever we can to ensure Americans are flying in space on American spacecraft designed and built here. Close quote. By bringing Lockheed on board, we think we're going to get get a tremendous boost boost for that. And I think they are. 
I think think bringing Lockheed Martin on board and what what they you know their knowledge and and their expertise. I think I think again this really really ensures that this thing's really going to fly and and fly in 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 good shape. So I'm I'm very eager to see this see the the drop test. I'm very eager to see what uh, uh, what comes of this, and I'm very very eager to see that thing sitting on top of an Atlas V booster and on its way to the International Space Station. Well, two big companies, as I mentioned before, and you know we'll, we'll definitely have to keep an eye on them and see where they're going because Dream Chaser is up there on that list of people that we're keeping a close eye on. Indeed. Alrighty then. So with that, we are now ready to move on to Mark, who is about to get a little more social. So I tend to not talk a lot about NASA social, but I keep bringing up little bits and pieces. So here's another little tidbit for you. Back in November, we talked to, again, talked to Jason Townsend and John Yembrick, the NASA social media manager and deputy social media media manager. And that was episode 436 from 2012. And I remember them telling us that there were going to be some great things coming up in 2013. And this is what I want to tell you about. Now, if you're listening to this after February 7th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, it's too late. If you already know about it, then you already know how exciting this is. If you're hearing about this after the fact, then just make a mental note to keep up with NASA.gov and the link at the top of the page that says Connect, and then from there go to NASA Social. And what's happening is on February 20th, NASA social media followers and their guests are going to have an opportunity to talk to three of the six crew members aboard the ISS. They're going to get to talk to agency scientists, engineers, about groundbreaking research taking place every day on that orbiting lab. Now, this is exciting because we've heard a good bit on several occasions from Tara Rutley at the Johnson Space Center about just that subject, the ISS science and research that goes on. And for NASA social people to have the opportunity to talk to the astronauts and to talk to the scientists and engineers, I think this is phenomenal. I'll give you a quick rundown. They're going to be talking to astronauts Kevin Ford, Tom Marshburn, and Canadian Space Agency astronaut Chris Hadfield that are on board the ISS. They're also going to talk with NASA astronaut Don Pettit, and other agencies, scientists, and engineers that I mentioned. They're going to tour NASA headquarters, the Space Operations Center, with live views from the ISS. And they're also going to get a special tour showcasing American spaceflight history at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. This happens on February 20th. And if nothing else, if, if, it's, if you're like me and you're not able to go and you're not going to be there... Watch on Twitter, watch on Facebook, watch for the people that are going to be part of this, and look at what they're telling us, and hear how exciting this is and how worthwhile what happens on the ISS is in regards to space and research. Hey, Mark, can, can anybody recall what that date is and what the significance of that date is, February 20th? And I can understand why they're doing the history uh, walkthrough over at the Smithsonian for this. The date, think about, um, and I was just a star, uh, February 20th, 1962. I'll take you all the way back there. 
Uh, John, John Glenn flew his three orbits around the Earth on that day. So I guess what they're doing is they're sort of celebrating um, that achievement and uh, uh, hopefully showing folks a little bit of the spaceflight history uh, over at the Smithsonian, but also focus in, too, that there are you know, Americans flying in space right now. That the space program is not dead. The human space flight program is still alive and well. It's just for now we're dealing with uh, with just a little bit of a hiatus. So um, as far as our own vehicles are concerned, but you know, as I just reported, Dream Chaser is, is coming close to reality. So is Dragon. So is CST one hundred, and so is Orion. So. We may be out of the game for now, but we're gonna, we've got a, a bunch of vehicles waiting in the wings. And I, I'll add the new Shepard, too, um, from uh, uh, Blue Origin. That's also still under development. Um, Excalibur Almaz has got their, their thing. There are a few other companies, too, out there that are also getting their, their projects together as well. So, so we're, not out of the, we're not out of the game by any means. And uh, uh, it'll be nice, though, to see... Um, I'm, I'm actually envious of the folks that are going to go to this and the folks that are going to get selected, though. I mean, having a, a backstage tour of, of, of space history over the Smithsonian, wow. <laughs> and especially on, on a day like that, on February 20th, on that day, wow. I mean, I'm, I'm just getting goosebumps thinking about it. Good luck, guys. I hope uh, if you're selected, uh, have a blast. That makes it even better. And I left out Google+, Plus, which is actually where I saw mention of this first. So... There'll be information out there. Find some people to follow that are going to be active, especially on that. There will be a Twitter account set up for participants that will have a list of names that are uh, on Twitter that are going to be part of that. And, of course, like I said, Facebook and Google+. So keep your ears open. And also keep up with what's coming out because right now this is uh, not, as unless I'm just not refreshing the the web page correctly, I'm not getting this on the menu for NASA Social. This is a page that's there that they haven't got listed uh, yet on their on their main NASA Social page. So keep your eyes open. Indeed, and and please, if if you do get the opportunity, sign up for these things. Mark, you and I have been to you know we've been to one or two of these things, and and, and they're just extraordinary events. NASA really, really rolls out the red red carpet for you and takes you behind the scenes of things that you don't normally get to see and meet people that you don't normally get to meet. So, you know, again, I urge you to go ahead and, and sign up for this if you're if, if you're listening, if you know, and you're still able to do so. If not, keep your as Mark just said, keep your eyes open. There'll be other opportunities to to, to chime in on, on one of these because I mean, but you gotta do it. They're just extraordinary events. Yes, indeed. And, of course, if you want more information on NASA Socials, we have a couple of episodes on them, including some interviews with the people behind NASA Socials. So definitely go ahead, check the website, and look into some of our past episodes if you've never participated in one, or just ask anybody on Twitter. All right, so with that, we are now on to our third and final trip around the table. And to begin this third trip, it comes to me, and I am going to be doing a story that Mark has been doing in the past lately. Mark has been giving us all these really cool videos and things to check out, and now it's my turn. 
astronaut Chris Hadfield has become a social media giant on the International Space Station. He has been tweeting, and he has been trying to interact with people on Twitter, and he has been very active. And one thing that's really interesting is that the Canadian Space Agency, as well as a couple of other people on YouTube, have been posting videos of him on the International Space Station doing demonstrations. Now, we've all seen some pretty cool space demonstrations and experiments and somersaults, but these are the basic things. How do you wash your hands in space? How do you clip your nails in space? Simple things, but things that make you think and go, huh, how do they really do that? So he has been posting some videos on that, and we're going to post a link to a couple of those because I think they're really interesting and worth checking out. And he also has an event coming up this week. On Thursday, there will be a tweet-up at the Canadian Space Agency, where 30 tweets have been selected. And he will be directly conversing and answering questions with those 30 tweets, as well as another one, another Canadian, by the name of William Shatner. If you might recall, they had a little bit of a back and forth joking around with each other on Twitter a couple of weeks ago, and now they're finally going to get to talk face-to-face, or at least as face-to-face as you can get from the International Space Station in Canada. Two things that are interesting that you may want to check out. Yeah, sorry, I think it's kind of interesting that you've got uh, two two Canadians, one that, that kind of sort of commanded a, a fictional starship, and, and one that is going to command a quite real orbiting outpost uh, come March. And uh, Chris Hadfield you know, first, we talked to him here on this program uh, as part of our STS-135 coverage. Back then, he struck me as somebody who's, who's just absolutely fascinating. And um, it, it, he's kind of really taking this whole thing to the, to the next level. He's showing what day-to-day life is like on board the ISS. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with that? How do you deal with you know, just really, really everyday things that you would take for granted down here? How do you? How does it work up there? And you know, he's he's kind of sort of lifting the veil a little bit of, of you know, I don't want to say secrecy. That's that's the wrong wrong term. But but just sort of you know, gee, how do they really do that? And you know, more power to him. I'm serious. I'm really really looking forward to much more of these videos. One if once he gets the opportunity to to put them all together. I mean, it's, a lot of this stuff has been really really cool and, and kind of exciting and. And just kind of interesting too. It's like, oh, okay, that's how they do that up there, you know. So it's, it, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing a lot more of that. It's this is going to be neat. And, and again, hats off to you, Mr. Hatfield. Thanks a whole bunch for, uh, for sharing all this with us. Yes, indeed. And as you mentioned, Gene, we talked with him back in July of 2011, way before he was ready to launch, and we talked to him a little bit about the comparisons between shuttle and his anticipation and training for about this time. So if you go back and listen to part three of our live STS-135 launch coverage, you can hear that interview. Alrighty then, so we are now moving on, and uh, Gene, are you good to grow with this next story? Yeah, we're going to stay on the ISS for a little bit uh, here on this next story. Good to grow, I like that one. Um, a, uh, a Russian uh, news outlet, RIA Novosti, there I said it right for a change, <laughs> um, reported uh, that, uh, well, scientists 
back in Russia have been looking at uh, things that they're growing on the ISS. Namely, in this case, they were looking at, at cabbage. Um, and these, again, these samples were brought back down, and they're they're going ahead. They're they're analyzing them to make sure that, well, can you really really eat stuff that's been grown on orbit? And they've been looking at it from you know microbiological problem problems, and and they've been looking at it from a biomass issue. They've been looking at it from a microbial uh, perspective, and. So far, the results, according to the article I'm looking at that was uh, released on January 30th, um, says that um, <laughs> the cabbage, as far as they can tell, is good to consume. Um, and the article goes on to say that uh, the microbiological uh, or the microbial stuff is a, is a key safety parameter for determining... Um, you know, a space traveler's diet and fruits and veggies, you know, can't be washed on board, obviously. So you want to make sure that, you know, as you pluck these things out of the, the hydroponic area, that they're ready, you know, they're clean and ready to eat. And so far, so good. Now, what the game plan is, according to the article, is they're hoping to go ahead and use the results of uh, future tests on, on food that's grown on board the ISS to kind of compile a list of uh, plants that are you know so suitable for suitable for cultivating in a I guess in a hydroponic environment in microgravity conditions so then this way you know we're, we're kind of building you know we're, we're kind of building a menu for for long-term uh, space flight here on board the ISS you know what foods can you grow say en route to Mars for instance um, so this is kind of actually this is it may seem like something that, that's kind of small, but in in reality it, it's kind of exciting to see this that that you know you can actually grow vegetables that are good to eat on board the ISS, which means you can grow your own food en route. Uh, and hopefully, if you you have a collection of, of vegetables that you can grow, um, you'll have a varied diet, so you won't get bored up there. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's a big plus going forward, I think. So that means if you're going to go ahead and set up shop on the moon or if you're going to go ahead and go out to Mars, grow your own food if you br bring things along. So, again, yeah, that's a big step. It's a big deal. Exactly. As you mentioned, that, that's going to be huge when it comes to those long-duration space flights to Mars and other places. The ability to grow hydroponically, which, in case you're not aware of, is growing without using any soil. But it's an interesting concept, and I, I honestly find it amazing that they had to go through all these tests to see whether it was edible or not in the first place. Yeah, you just want to make sure that things are going well and, and that, indeed, you can go ahead and, and these things are actually safe to eat. And lo and behold, from what, uh, at least from, from the, the cabbage that they tested, it seems to be edible. So, uh, you know, again, this is a huge deal, and it's going to be a big plus on, in our cap so to speak going forward you know again if you're talking about you know building building a permanent facility on the moon you could go ahead and grow your your own own vegetables there or if you're going to head out to mars you can you can grow your own ve veggies en route so this is this is a real big plus it also means you don't want to carry as much so this is this is going to be a, a, a big deal seriously 
Honestly, I think it'll be a bigger deal when they start growing something other than cabbage, but that's just personal preference. Yeah, I mean, the, what, well, what they're doing, <laughs> you know, to quote the, the article here, Russian scientists plan, the, plan to use the results of these experiments for compiling a list of plants suitable for cultivating during prolonged spaceflight. Uh, so, you know, this is just the start. Got to start somewhere, and they just somebody just said, "Okay." They f- probably flipped a couple of coins and said, "Okay, we'll try cabbage and see what happens." And lo and behold, it works. So they're probably going to move on to other things. And uh, again, this is all part of. And Mark, you brought this up too. This is all part uh, and parcel of what the ISS is up there for uh, to go ahead and kind of work out the bugs for long duration spaceflight. And this is you know, they're they're doing some really good groundbreaking work over here. And there's a possibility, too, if you could go ahead and, and grow these things hydroponically, you know, there's a possibility, too, that you could pass this along to you know, places down here and you know, use these techniques in, in places that you know, can't grow food and, uh, and try, to, try to help people out down here, too. So there, there, are, some, there are implications. And uh, it, either way, it's a, it's a win all the way around. Yes, indeed, and looking forward to seeing astronauts eating their own grown food. All right, so we have one story left, and it's only appropriate that this story goes to our aviation expert, Mark. So this is about something that, uh, as I was thinking about it, I reminisced back to my childhood and a very, uh, at times, somewhat silly TV show that was on then called Batman, and one of the lines that you frequently heard on that show back in the day was as Batman and Robin were getting in the Batmobile, they would call out this little litany of kind of a checklist before they went. It said atomic batteries to power, turbines to speed, and then the Batmobile would zoom out of the Batcave. Well, this is about batteries, but it's not about the Batmobile. This is an article that I'm going to refer to primarily from this point on, along with a little bit of my own experience mixed in by Aviation Week and Space Technology writer Frank Mooring, Jr. This was out in Aviation Week's page today on February 4th. And what he's talking about is the ISS lithium-ion replacement batteries that are planned for 2017. Uh, Lithium-ion batteries are something that has gotten some headlines recently with the Boeing 787 having problems on multiple carriers to where I believe the fleet has probably been grounded for inspections. And to be honest, I haven't really studied into that whole issue as to what their status is right now. But they have had problems and severe problems with batteries. Now, let me tell you my own experience with batteries. And in my case, we're talking about some rather simple technology, and definitely not lithium-ion, but a sealed lead-acid battery, one that's not position-sensitive. You can set it on its side. It does not have liquid electrolyte, but they're quite massive, quite heavy. Talking a stack of batteries that weighs uh, anywhere from seven, 800 pounds to 1,400 pounds, some serious weight. And batteries that, uh, when things go bad for them, they start to cook internally. And they go into a condition called thermal runaway. And thermal runaway is not something that you want to have on an aircraft, and certainly not on the space station. So NASA is planning 
back to the Aviation Week article, NASA is planning to use lithium-ion battery cells from the same company that builds the cells used in the Boeing 787. Now, what's different is that they're going to be replacing nickel-hydrogen battery packs that are on orbit with these new lithium-ion units in a few years. Now, they're not concerned about it because, well, for one thing, there's already some lithium-ion cells on the space station. For one, in February of 2011, Space Shuttle Discovery delivered some lithium-ion battery assemblies, which were small, to power the U.S.-built spacesuits. Also, the laptops that are on board and, of course, inside the space station have lithium-ion batteries. And the safety rules that were applied to, to those devices also apply to visiting vehicles that visit the space station, namely, let's say, for instance, SpaceX Dragon. That has lithium-ion batteries. And if you think about Elon Musk, who's also involved with Tesla Motors and their electric uh, roadsters and vehicles, they're powered with lithium-ion batteries. And he said that, this is interesting, uh, Elon Musk said that space batteries meet the two-fault tolerance NASA redundancy requirements, but he says the automotive environment can be more challenging because of the need for crashworthiness. And he says he thinks he knows what the problem is with the Boeing 787 Dreamliner lithium-ion batteries, and he's offered to communicate some of his company's expertise to Boeing via Sir Richard Branson, chairman of the Virgin Group. So Elon feels that he's got a handle on this and wants to share his expertise. These batteries that are planned to fly on to the space station are quite unique in that they're made such that they'll have adapter plates that will actually store the worn out nickel hydrogen batteries that they're going to be replacing. So they're kind of uh, sort of piggybacked or made to be mounted over the cells that they are taking the place of. The batteries are going to weigh 425 pounds a piece. There'll be 24 that will be provided in rotation, I'm sure, for replacement on orbit. And there'll be three that'll be kept on ground as spares. And uh, I think it's interesting that something that's causing such a concern in the aviation community, maybe because of some, des not necessarily design problems, but the, the way that they, I guess that would be designed, the way they constructed them, and the size of the batteries that are on the aircraft. And uh, Elon Musk feels that uh, he's got it figured out, and let's hopefully see some people work together. Yeah, Mark, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, an article from, uh, I guess it's uh, Popular Science, and you know, uh, Mr. Musk is basically saying, too, that uh, he, he's more than willing to, to help out uh, with, with this, and he says, quote, Tesla and SpaceX are happy to help with the 787 lithium-ion battery issue. Um, to get over to the investigation, I think there's, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but I think there's about uh, 50 Dreamliners in operation right now, and pretty much all of them are sitting on the ground and pending the results on this. Well, you know, you heard me sort of hedge as to what the status was. I work for the FAA, but I'm, a, I'm an electronics tech. I'm a nav applications technician. I don't know the aircraft end of the business. I certainly don't know the regulatory and the flight standards and the inspection side of things. 
Um, so I really can't speak as to what's going on because, to be honest, I haven't even read that much of the conventional media coverage of this event to to describe it. Um, I'm not the least bit concerned. It's a bump in the road. Uh, to tell you about an aircraft that I was I was looking into the history of back in the early days of, of jetliners, there was an aircraft that had a design flaw, and they lost multiple aircraft. This wasn't Boeing. This was actually a company from Europe. They lost multiple aircraft uh, before they found out what the problem was, and then they fixed it, and they had a good service life after that. And often when there is a, a bug, that's just what it takes is a little time to find it and to find the proper work to uh, to make it safe. I'm sure they will. And I don't think that we need to be concerned about this for our astronauts and what's going on in space. Oh, let me mention this. Are lithium-ion batteries used anywhere else? Well, they're on other high-value government commercial spacecraft. For one, they're going to be on the James Webb Space Telescope. Why are they used? Because here you are, you're thinking of problems with an aircraft. Well, they're used because they have a very high power density, and they are um, much, well, they're much, I won't say they're much lighter, but they're lighter. There's a weight savings. And anything that you can send to space that weighs less saves you money and gives you more capability for other cargoes. I do have a little bit more information. The 787 Dreamliner batteries... Because of the issue, they did have to ground the fleet, and I do not think it has been restarted yet. But there were a couple of batteries that kind of caught on fire on planes. And well, yeah, Sawyer. The, the I, actually the inve- I've been kind of sort of following the investigation on on the on the seven eighty seven, and they're actually moving away from the battery. Believe it or not, um, the whole thing with that, you know, they're moving into other things. But I saw something a little blurb just this just this morning um, about that. Um, that they're they're kind of sort of moving away away from from the batteries as sort of the smoking gun. Although there is there there are problems with with the batteries, and there may be problems with 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 these particular type of batteries. So, you know, yeah, anything that that SpaceX might be willing to go ahead and share with Boeing would probably be more than than uh, more than helpful. Right. Yeah. Because. People who have been getting the planes have been reporting that they've had to replace the batteries a lot more than they expected, but that's not necessarily related to this. And as you were saying, Mark, as it being just a bump in the road, they're already increasing the number of 787s that they're producing. So I don't think it's that big of a deal, but still something definitely worth looking at. I don't think there will be too much of a firestorm as the time goes on. And on that note, on that terrible joke... I think that brings this episode to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everybody who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Jim McCulka. This was a darn fun show, Sawyer. I can't, uh, you know, again, thanks a whole lot for everybody for participating. This was fun. Yes, indeed. And thank you as well for joining us, Mark Ratterman. We'll see you next time. Hopefully I'll have something I'm cooking up that'll be interesting and something that I'll be able to simplify and still communicate halfway decent. Ooh, looking forward to that, and we hope you will join us, and I have a feeling there's still a story that's stuck in all of our heads, but I'm going to let that reminisce with you. But in the meantime, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. (laughs) 